All right, all right. Um, why don't you uh, stand now for the reading of God's word? This has been our theme passage uh, for this last couple weeks. Hebrews eleven twenty three through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the approach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. This is God's word. Go ahead and take a seat. Uh, I may not look like it, or maybe you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but growing up in uh, junior high and uh, elementary age, high school, and even college, I actually went camping quite a lot. Uh, did a lot of camping with my church growing up. I was in a group, I've talked about this before, it's similar to Boy Scouts, got my equivalent of the Eagle Scout Award as a senior in high school, survival outings, all this stuff. But one of the very first times I went camping, I think I was about the age of my son there, I forget, fifth or sixth grade, we were camping and I uh, couldn't get like the, the door of the tent open, zipped it, and somehow, I don't know how I did it, I zipped up my finger in the tent door. Anyone ever done that before? Uh, it hurt a lot. And so kind of had to unzip it and blood's gushing everywhere. And so I remember just all the other like junior high boys are crowded around me and I'm looking down at my finger and the blood is going like this, you know. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was like, what? And next thing I knew I was staring up at the sky uh, with a whole bunch of kids around me and I just passed out. And from that moment on, Man, uh, blood just made me queasy. Um, for some reason, it's worse if it's my blood versus someone else's. I'm okay with our four children that we had born. Uh, although, if you do want to make me uh, feel faint and pass out, all you have to do is ro- open up some rubbing alcohol. That does it for me. Uh, and I get faint and almost pass out. It's a very strange thing. Um, but what is it about blood that oftentimes makes us really, really queasy? Uh, maybe not for you. Maybe you're in the medical profession. You're like, I love blood. My wife loves blood. When she donates blood, she likes watching it come out of her arm into the tube and filling up. And I'm like, uh, she talks about it and I want to pass out. But there, there's something about blood that can make us kind of, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I remember the, you know, the first time I went to my grandparents' church and they talked about you know, being washed in the blood. And that wasn't the kind of church I grew up in. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. That'd be pretty sticky. I don't know about that whole thing about being washed in the blood. And I remember as a kid hearing about like, the Old Testament animal sacrifices and what's up with blood. Why does God like blood? This is weird. So what is it about the Bible and blood? The answer is, you know, we're, we're going to dive into tonight. In a lot of churches, sometimes I think just are like, that's weird. Let's not even talk about the blood and just kind of wipe it away. But the reality is, it's a big part of of God's covenant with us. Both the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant. And that's what we're going to look at today. What is the deal with the blood? 
we have been looking at the life of Moses a couple weeks now. We said we're going to do kind of a, a really broad overview of the life of Moses, just four weeks. So encouraging you to read the whole book of Exodus uh, during kind of this month, because we're not going to cover it all. And then next month, we're going to have a whole bunch of Joshua's talking about the book of Joshua, which I'm super excited about. And so uh, we have plenty of Joshua's here to do that. So we can do that. Uh, and so that'll be the month of August. So the first two weeks we talked about Moses, how, you know, during this time, uh, we kind of go back, you know, Abraham was called out of the land of kind of the, the Babylon area, modern-day Iraq, and God said, hey, I'm going to build a nation out of you. But his wife was barren, didn't have any children. So they, they, they moved to the promised land, and God miraculously finally gives him Isaac. And then Isaac meets Rebecca, and they can't have children either and for the longest time. For 20 years, they pray, and then finally God grants them, and they get twins, Jacob and Esau. And God continues that promise through the line of Jacob, and he has these 12 sons. And uh, the second to youngest son, Joseph, is kind of a snot-nosed kid. He's kind of cocky, and so the brothers, we're going to kill him. They're like, no, nah, let's not kill him. What's much more humane? Let's just sell him into a life of slavery. So they sell him into a life of slavery. And he goes down to Egypt. Long story short, huge famine in the land. His brothers have to go down to Egypt to get some food. And they meet the last person possible. It's Joseph. And he forgives them. And they become this big happy family again. And they're all living in Egypt now where there's food. Well, they have friends in power. The king loves them. And life is good. But time goes on. And, and Joseph's you know, grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-great-grandsons. And hundreds of years pass. And much like many immigrant families, they start to explode in population. And the people around them are like, what's up with these kind of immigrants who look a little different than us, don't speak quite like us, have weird customs. They're, they're uh, shepherds, and shepherds are stinky, and Egyptians didn't like shepherds. And so over time, the dominant kind of people group started getting kind of worried about these, this immigrant family and eventually put them in chains and were slaves. And, but the people continued to explode. And the king, Pharaoh, was so worried about them. He said, all right, midwives, here's the deal. You have to kill all the males. Can you imagine this? A whole generation of males wiped out. But Moses' parents, they tried to keep him hidden away for a couple months. But then they just kind of had to put things in God's hands. And they put Moses in this little basket and sent him down the Nile River, crocodiles, hippos, and all. And the last person you'd ever imagine would pull out Moses as Pharaoh's own daughter. And Moses is raised in the palace for 40 years. And, and he gets the finest education, but he's kind of this in two different worlds because he looks a certain way, but he's living in the palace. But he doesn't talk like his, his neighbor, his kin that are actually Hebrews. But he, he's living in the palace, but he's, he's in this world and he's kind of torn between two worlds. And eventually he realizes he was born for purpose and he, he kills this this slave uh, overlord who's, who's beating one of the Hebrews. But then he gets caught, and so he runs away and he, into the desert, and he meets Jethro and marries Jethro's daughter, and he gets a job, and now he's spent 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the palace learning art and science and math, 40 years in the wilderness learning how to shepherd and, and get water and all those things. And then we talked about this two weeks ago. He's out in the wilderness and he sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And it's the Holy One, God, the God of his 
great, 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 great grandparents, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says Moses calls him out to a purpose. And so now Moses is going to confront Pharaoh. But Moses is a little nervous. He said, I can't really do this alone. I need, my, I need my big brother Aaron to come and do this with me. And so we'll pick up our story in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Open up your phones, whatever you want to do. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, so they now are going to confront the king, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now what's surprising here is courage is kind of the last thing that we would expect to see from Moses. We saw him cover up a murder. He murdered this man and, and hit him in the sand. And then he ran from the, the Egyptian police and spent 40 years in the desert watching sheep. When he first meets God, he's like, God, not me. I, I, I stutter, send my brother, not me. I'm not, I'm not the right guy for the job. And yet here we see him walk up to the most powerful man in the world and demand the release of the slaves. What made the difference for Moses? What changed his life? What transformed him from this frightened fugitive to this bold spiritual leader? The answer is Moses had met the living God. See, the same thing happened to the very first followers of Jesus. We read this in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they, the, the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John who were preaching, hey, you killed Jesus, but he rose again, and he breaking down all the religious barriers and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Another way uh, to translate that is that they were idiots. Idiotas is the Greek word there. They were astonished. And here's the key line. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These ordinary, uneducated fishermen. People were astounded by their boldness. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. That was the life-changing encounter with Jesus that made them bold, that gave them courage. Jesus equipped them with the Holy Spirit and he empowered them. The same thing happens to everyone who meets the living God. When we open our hearts to Jesus, God's Spirit changes us from the inside out. When people wonder, hey, what happened to you? Why are you so bold? Why are you taking these steps of faith? There's only one possible explanation to say, we have been with the God of Moses and his son, Jesus Christ. That is why, again, I believe this next year. We are here to end spectator Christianity, not just sitting around watching in the back row, drinking our Starbucks coffee, but we want to end spectator Christianity by equipping and empowering followers of Jesus. Empowering. Give someone authority to do something, to make stronger and more confident. Equipping, to supply with the necessary items for a particular purpose, to make ready. So Moses had been equipped and empowered by God. So what does he do? He speaks truth to power. He fights for justice. He tells Pharaoh he needs to bow his knee to the one true God. Pharaoh needs to repent. He's on a path of death and destruction. But Moses says, saying, there's another way. We have the same calling as Moses to speak truth to power, to fight for justice, 
to tell people, hey, you are on a path of death and destruction. You may not even know it, but you need to turn and repent. We've talked about that. The Hebrew word for repentance means you're going a certain way and you turn and you go back to the way that God has for you. The gospel is first of all a demand of God to saying that we need to repent and believe in his son. To say, you know what? I have messed up. And the price for my sins is death and destruction. But Jesus on the cross paid for that sin. And so now I'm going to put my trust and faith in him. I'm going to turn from the path I was living. And now I'm going to live in the way of Jesus. But Pharaoh, he doesn't listen. He's not going to give up his whole labor workforce. He's built his whole nation on the back of slaves. And so why would he let them go? So God then unleashes nine plagues on the Egyptians and again, I encourage you to read those. There's a lot in there. You don't have time to unpack about how he deals with all their Egyptian gods one at a time. But through all that, Pharaoh simply just hardens his heart and refuses to repent. And so one more plague is coming. The death of the firstborn son. See, the ancient Egyptians, they were obsessed with death. They had their gods of the underworld and the gods of death. And, and we see today these giant pyramids that were a monument to their death, and they had these elaborate death rituals that even today, 2,000, 3,000 years later, you can see mummified pharaohs. They were obsessed with death and dying. See, the thing is, everyone's going to face death. The mortality rate hovers right about 100% for all of us. We're not getting out of here alive. I think humans have a couple different ways of dealing with this. There's the nihilist view. He says, you know, I don't have anything to live for anywhere, so I might as well just destroy myself. I'm just going to live a life that doesn't really matter because what is the point of it all? A lot of people maybe who read Nietzsche and just say, it's all pointless. Then there's the hedonist who tries to distract himself and not think about death and eternity. He says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Then there's the moralist who says, I don't know, Maybe there's some kind of God or, or spirit out there and I'm just going to do my best and live my best. And man, that whole therapeutic deism is so popular right now. This idea of, of a moralistic therapeutic deism of just, hey, live a good life. There's some kind of all spirit out there and he, he wants the best for you. It doesn't really matter. Uh, just even last week I was on Twitter interacting with a formerly famous Christian singer who just said, hey, you know, if you get stuck in your prayers, just pray to Allah, pray to Shiva, pray to all these different gods of different religions. And I was saying, hey, you are imposing your colonialism on them because my neighbor who's Muslim does not think when he prays to Allah, that's the same God when I pray to Jesus of Nazareth. And that Shiva is not the same as Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that Jesus is Lord and that he brought a new way to live. And he says that all are welcome. We don't have to be a nihilist and just say, hey, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to be hedonists and just say, you know, live for my own pleasure for tomorrow we die. We don't have to just be a moralist and say, hey, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to have my good deeds outweigh my bad because some kind of all spirit out there is going to weigh it. And I know, you know, if Mother Teresa's down here, up here and Hitler's down here, I'm somewhere in the middle. We say, no, that, that's not the way it works. What we're, we're going to see here is how does God's scales really work? See, Romans tells us that actually the wages of sin is death. And here's something important I want us all to catch, and this is really critical. This is something I don't want you to miss. Is that the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, were just as guilty in their sin as their Egyptian masters. 
I've done a little bit of reading on power dynamics and, and uh, people in power versus those who are not. And some great scholars are saying the reality is those who are in power and enslaving others, they are just as much in bondage as those who are in actually chains and in bondage. See, the reality is people in power who are abusing that power, they don't realize that they have need for forgiveness and grace and they've been abusing their power just as much as those who need to be liberated. And see, the Egyptians, man, they need to turn and repent, but the Israelites were just as guilty. See, like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. And God said, I'm going to send the angel of death, and he's going to pass over every single home with the purpose of killing their firstborn son. Now, if you're Israelite, you're Hebrew, and you heard, hey, you know, we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now you find out, what do you mean God's going to come and destroy every firstborn child in our home? Like, what, what is going on here? That their lives are in danger. They must have been tempted to believe, hey, we're way more righteous than the Egyptians. We can't do any wrong. But the truth is, they deserve to die just as much as their enemies. They were just as guilty. And in the final plague, God's going to teach them about their sin and their salvation. See, God is a perfect and righteous judge. See, a perfect and righteous judge can't let some wrongdoing go and, you know, only punish some. If you are perfectly just, you have to punish everyone equally. And the reality is everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is a perfect and righteous judge. He doesn't judge on a sliding scale. Have you done anything wrong? Then you deserve judgment. But, but God is full of mercy too. And that is the great paradox of the kingdom of God. That God is perfectly righteous and just. And yet he's full of mercy. And mercy means not getting the punishment that you deserve. And so because of that, God provided a way for anyone to be covered. Moses told the people how they could be saved. A lamb was to be killed, and the blood from the lamb was to be painted on the doorposts of their home. In this culture, a lot of honor, shame, blood really recon, uh, symbolized the, the life force of that. And, and so he said, hey, you got to take a perfect spotless lamb, one years old, can't be, you know, kind of a bad lamb that you want to get rid of. It has to be a perfect spotless lamb. And then you'll take that lamb into your, your family. And then you'll kill that lamb. And you'll paint the blood on the doorpost of your home. You're going to eat that meal as a reminder that we deserve to die. But that lamb's going to die in our place instead. And they looked up when they saw the blood on the doorpost. They could see that they were covered. To use a technical theological term. That blood of the lamb was the expiation of their sin. It, it took it away. And so the followers of, of Yahweh, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they did that. And they took a lamb, perfect spotless lamb, one years old, and they killed that lamb. And they prepared this feast and they, of, of unleavened bread. So they, they basically packed up all their, their bags to ready to go camping. They didn't have time for the yeast, for the dough to rise. And so they, they ate flatbread at this meal and the bitter herbs and the lamb. And that night, can you imagine what they were thinking? If I was a parent, I gotta be honest, I wouldn't have slept. I would have stayed awake. Probably sitting next to Joshua's bed. Did I do it right? Did I, did I paint the blood on the doorpost right? And you're wading through the night and 
And perhaps then in the morning, you start to heal, hear the, the wailing, the cries, the, the desperation of all these families who didn't believe, who didn't plink the blood on their doorposts and their firstborn son paid the price. Man, I, I just can't imagine just the anguish and sadness of all those families. And we see then the people urge Pharaoh, hey, let these people go. But see, these Israelites, they could have confidence that they were covered in the blood. And as followers of Jesus, we can have that same confidence when we are fearful or anxious. What we have to do is we look to the cross as a sign that we are covered. And the idea of a lamb being offered for their sin is all throughout the Old Testament. We talk about Abraham. For many, many years, he wanted to have a child and he's promised his family. And he finally gets Isaac. And there's this really strange story I preached on a couple of years back. And you can go listen to, find that sermon if you want. But God tells him, hey, take your one and only son and sacrifice him to me. Like, what? Because God does not ask for human sacrifices. This is totally out of his character. What's going on? But will Abraham sacrifice the thing that's most precious to him? The book of Hebrews says that by faith Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God could raise him from the dead. And so when he gets to do it, they approach this where they're going to have the offering. And they have the wood and the fire. And Isaac's not a dummy. And he's like, uh, Dad, where's the lamb? And, he's, and Abraham says, God will provide. And just when Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice his son, angel stops him and says, don't do it. And God provides a ram caught by its horn in the thickets. And that, ram, and that, that lamb provides covering for Isaac. Then we see now in Exodus a lamb providing cover for a whole family. And then as they become a nation, God institutes what's called the Day of Atonement. And this is where the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And, and, and it, was, it was so holy, in fact, that uh, uh, they'd put a, tie a rope to his leg. In case he was struck dead, uh, they could pull him out. And because if he died, it was a real drag. Thank you. I had to get one joke in there because blood's a little, uh, talk about. But on the Day of Atonement, they'd sacrifice one lamb and cover the whole nation. And then when Jesus comes, John the Baptist says in John 1.29, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we moved from a lamb covering one person, Isaac, to a lamb covering a whole family, to a lamb covering a whole nation. And now Jesus, he comes and he's the lamb who provides a way for the whole world. And Jesus' death paints blood on the doorposts of the universe. And now everyone is allowed in. We believe in the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. That means that Jesus shed his blood for us. When we look to the cross, we see that payment has been made for our sins. And what does God see when he looks at the cross? He sees that it's stained with the blood of his own firstborn son. He doesn't have a substitute to offer in place of his son. His son is the substitute. Romans 3 says that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. But God provided the lamb that takes away the sins of the world and that everyone who trusts in him will be saved. Church historian Claire Davis, I like how he, he describes the Christian faith as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. He says, I know I've forgotten this before. Okay, you're tracking with me? He says, it's a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I, I know I've forgotten this before. In other words, 
as we follow Christ, we keep needing to relearn the same lessons over and over and again because we keep forgetting them. Amen? Anyone else tracking with me? Happens again and again. We, we realize I have to relearn this lesson. We suffer from kind of this spiritual amnesia, forgetting that it's only by God's grace that we can do anything good. Sometimes we, we, we try to earn God's favor. And like, oh, that's right. That's right, God. I don't need to earn your favor. Uh, my, my price has been paid through Jesus, and you love me, and you've adopted me into his family. So this Christian life is this combination of amnesia and deja vu. And, and it's because we're so forgetful that God often commands us again and again to remember, to remember, to remember. And that is why on this first Passover night, God said, hey, remember, do this every year. And for 3,500 years, people have been doing the Passover feast. It's actually the oldest religious feast in the history of the world that continues on to this day. And what would happen is they would gather for this feast and the five-year-old or Andrew who's six, or they'd say, uh, uh, Dad, why are we doing this? Well, remember, we used to once be slaves in bondage. And, and what makes tonight different than every other night? Well, we were eating the unleavened bread because we're getting ready to go. And we were in slavery and bondage, but God is calling us out. And it was all look back to the past of remembering how once we were slaves, but then we were made free. But also look ahead to the future, that someday we're going to be made completely free again. And on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover feast with his closest friends. Now, if you really study the gospel, it's kind of weird because it it seems like he celebrated the Passover feast uh, one day early. And it's kind of, scholars have kind of tried to figure this out, so if you really dive into this. But what happens is in the Jewish culture, they would start their days at sundown. So like we kind of just magically, a new day starts at midnight. It's kind of weird. Uh, For them, when the sun rose, sun went down, that's a new day. And so basically what Jesus did is he knows he's going to the cross. And so basically he's like, okay, Thanksgiving's coming up. And so we can celebrate it sometime on Thanksgiving. So it's like he celebrates Thanksgiving Day at like 12.01 midnight with his disciples. That's kind of what he does. So he kind of celebrates it a little bit early. And uh, there's a reason for that. But in Luke 22, he's celebrating this final Passover feast before he goes to the cross. And so, as good Jewish boys, they've had this same meal again and again, and as little boys, 5, 6, 10, 12, 14 years old, every, every year they'd remember, that's right, we, we were living in slavery and bondage, but then we'd take this lamb into our family, and then we'd, we'd kill the lamb and say, Daddy, why are you killing this lamb? Because we are, are, are slaves and we were under the, the curse of death. But this lamb is, is making a way for us and we're covered in the blood and, and we're remembering someday God's going to lead us out into freedom. And so Jesus, he actually doesn't talk a whole lot about why he had to die. You go through and read all his readings, it's actually kind of like, Jesus, why don't you talk about this too much? If this is so important, why don't you talk more about why you had to die? Instead of writing a book or giving a really good speech, he uses this feast and this meal to teach them. It says, and when the hour came, he reclined at table. And so they're all sitting around there at the table and, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every year of their life, they've taken this bread as a reminder that they were slaves and bondage, but God saved us. And now Jesus is like, okay, take this bread. Like, yep, yep. So imagine you're at Thanksgiving, and like your crazy teacher is like, all right, this turkey is my body. 
what? Like, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, he's subverting all their ideas. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus takes this religious festival that they knew so well, and he subverts it and says, from now on, you're going to celebrate Passover a little differently. It's a reminder that it's about me. And as you study this, there's no indication that actually they had any lamb at their Passover feast. And I think that's very clear. He wanted them to know that the lamb was sitting at the table with them. And he, the lamb was going to die for them the next year. Whether you've been wronged, whether you've done wrong, all are welcome at the table. So I want to encourage you during this next song to take some of this bread. And you're just going to dip it in the cup. And you want, maybe you want to hold your hand. And then take some time to reflect. And just think about maybe that first Passover when they were waiting. Was it going to be enough? Was the angel of death going to kill our firstborn son? And then think about God, the Father, who actually gave his firstborn son, Jesus, for us. But now we are covered by the blood and the body of Jesus. And now it's a reminder that we are forgiven and we are welcomed into his family. We can receive his love and grace. I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to invite you to, to come down here. And uh, for those who are gluten-free, you can grab one of these uh, little packets, all in one. Um, they don't taste very good, but they are gluten-free. Let me, let me pray, and then uh, we're going to receive communion together. God, thank you. You are our Redeemer. You are our Savior. You are King. Thank you that you led the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage, and then you sent your son Jesus to be that lamb who would take the sins of the whole world. And so now all who trust and believe in you can be saved. And God, we're just so quick to forget. We get so just caught up in, in, in life and worries and politics and social media and just everything. So God, we want to remember, we want to remember just how much you love us, that you went to the cross for us and so now we can be saved. Be with us now, Jesus, as we sing, as we worship, as we receive communion together. And God, thank you that all are welcome at the table. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's come to the table.